and welcome to another episode of Damn Interesting Week. We are so glad you've joined us today. My name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And this was a Damn Interesting Week. So let's get started with our first link. First link. Well, today ZME Science is asking the hard questions we've all wanted to know. Why were zebras never domesticated? Hmm. I don't know. <laughs> that would be nice. Like, can you imagine riding some zebras around on a farm? That would be awesome. Yeah. Oh, and it's been done, and there's photographic proof if you go to the <gasps> article at ZME Science. However, it's been a bit of an isolated incident, and so far, our efforts to fully domesticate the breed have been met with a lot of resistance. And part of that is because we know that zebras are more than just horses with stripes, right. which was something that European colonists would find out the hard way after countless <laughs> failed attempts to domesticate them. So part of this is we know that there's a relation to horses and dogs. Donkeys, because zebras also belong to the equidae family, also known as equids. In fact, these three species are so closely related that they can interbreed and form hybrids, which have hmm. delightful names. Um, what would you call a male zebra and a female donkey? A zonkey. Zonkey, yeah. That sounds better, but they've gone with zadonk. <laughs> <laughs> really? Okay, okay, let's try another one. What about the offspring of a male zebra and a female horse? A zahorse, if they're following Zels. their palate. <laughs> Close. A zorse. <laughs> okay, and the last one, a hybrid between zebras and ponies. What? A pony isn't a species. Zenny. That's a baby a, horse. A pobra. <laughs> Sounds like a pony cobra. Never mind. I, li I like that a lot better than what they said, which was a zoni. But I had uh, to look it up, Jennifer, because I had the same reaction you did, which I was like, what is the difference between a horse and a pony? It's size. So I think they were just trying to flex their, yeah. <laughs> their hybrid nomenclature here. Yeah, they were just making up words because it was fun. And I'm not denying that it's fun. I'm just, they're scientists. Agreed. They're supposed to be a little more serious. Come on. <laughs> I agree. And if they should take any of our proposed hybrid nomenclature into consideration, we hope to get a credit. Just FYI. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but regardless of these, you know, hybrids that are genetically possible, Zebras have resisted submitting to humans the same way that horses and donkeys have. And to make this even more confusing, zebras are native to Africa, which is the cradle of humanity. Wouldn't they have been our first attempt at domestication with this hmm. family of animals? Yeah. Well, the article is supposing this may have had something to do with natural selection. So zebras and horses diverged from a common ancestor around 4 to 4.7 million years ago, and each obviously became adapted to their particular environments. So while herds of wild horses in North America and Europe were initially kept as food animals, ooh, <laughs> they later became accustomed to humans. And then after the advent of agriculture around 12,000 years ago, Horses proved their worth in transportation and warfare, which prompted humans to then be like, hmm, maybe they're worth more than food. So we started investing more time and effort into domesticating them by selectively breeding the tamest individuals. But unlike wild horses, 
Zebras in the open African savanna had a lot more predators to worry about, like lions and cheetahs and even mm. super smart hyenas. Mm. So they're thinking natural selection may have forged zebras into very reactive animals that are ready to leap at the slightest sign of danger. And even though they have a pony-like size, some zebras have actually managed to kill attacking lions with a single <gasps> back kick. Wow. That's awesome. Right? And they're not less menacing from the front either, as they're known to pack a savage bite. So they'll bite, they'll kick, they know how to defend themselves. They also seem to have a hardwired ducking reflex, which greatly hinders their capture by lasso or other methods. Huh. And finally, zebras have no family structure and no hierarchy, unlike wild horses that live in herds and have a structured order. So they may be less prone to, I don't know, accepting orders from others, right? Yeah, they're loyal <laughs> to nobody. Exactly. <laughs> and so people were pretty quick to recognize these highly unfriendly qualities in zebras, but still tried to break the zebra to harness. So, for example, in the 19th century, zoologist Lord Walter Rothschild famously drove a carriage drawn by zebras to Buckingham Palace. And even later in the earliest 20th century, the first doctor in Nairobi allegedly made house calls on zebra back. <laughs> even the German army in its German East Africa colony was particularly interested in domesticating zebras in lieu of horses. And they even implemented a program to cross zebras with horses to create hybrids that were resistant to disease that typically wiped out imported horses. And even as recently as 2013, a teenager in Virginia named Shay Inman trained a zebra to ride it. And after many months of patience and reward-based training, she managed to somewhat ride the zebra, although <laughs> she herself noted, quote, some days it's like he's been riding for 30 years and other days he acts like he's never seen a human being. <laughs> I mean, somehow we're managing to get them into zoos at least, so they are capturable. <laughs> just... We just haven't figured out how to make friends yet. That's right. Well, it's very hard to be friendly when you've been trapped into a zoo. Like, I can see why they yeah. don't like that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And and being friendly kind of undercuts the whole serve them to our purposes, which is really what we're talking about here That's when right. we talk about yeah. domestication. It was a euphemism. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. This article comes to us from BBC.com, and it's titled Miraculous Mosquito Hack Cuts Dengue by 77%. Yeah. So, yeah. So the World Mosquito Program team says it could be a solution to a virus that has gone around the world. And a few people had heard of dengue 50 years ago, but it's been a relentless slow burn pandemic and cases have increased dramatically. In 1970, only nine countries had faced severe dengue outbreaks, and now there are up to 400 million infections a year. Ooh, That's wow. a lot. Yeah. Dengue is commonly known as breakbone fever because it causes severe pain in muscles and bones, and explosive outbreaks can overwhelm hospitals. So the trial used mosquitoes infected with Wolbachia bacteria. One of the researchers, Dr. Katie Anders, describes them as naturally miraculous. Wolbachia does not harm the mosquito, but it camps out in the same parts of the body that the dengue virus needs to get into. And the bacteria compete for resources and make it much harder for dengue virus to replicate, so the mosquito is less likely to cause an infection when it bites again. Nice. Hmm. The trial used 5 million mosquito eggs infected with Wolbachia. There's a really nice photo on this article of just like... Basically, they look like drink cups you'd get from Starbucks or something, the plastic ones, but they're just filled with mosquitoes and some <gasps> oh. greenish, swampy yellow water at the bottom. <laughs> yeah, it's real gnarly. And I was like, this is 
very important work, but also... That's right. right. Yeah, someone disgusting. else can do it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so eggs were placed in buckets of water in the city every two weeks, and the process of building up an infected population of mosquitoes took nine months. Hmm. And Yogyakarta was split into 24 zones, and the mosquitoes were released in only half of them. The results published in the New England Journal of Medicine showed a 77% reduction in cases and an 86% reduction in people needing hospital care. And this technique has been so successful, the mosquitoes have been released across the whole city, and the project is moving to surround the areas with the aim of eradicating dengue in the region. Wolbachia are also spectacularly manipulative and can alter the fertility of their host to ensure they're passed on to the next generation of mosquitoes. So mm. this means once Wolbachia has been established, it should stick around for a long time and continue to protect against dengue infection. Ooh. And this is in sharp contrast to other control methods, such as insecticides or mm -hmm. releasing large numbers of sterile male mosquitoes that need to be kept up in order to suppress the bloodsuckers. Mm. Dr. Euderia Amelia, the head of disease prevention in Yogyakarta City, said, We are delighted with the outcome of this trial. We hope this method can be further expanded in all cities in Indonesia. And finally, David Hamer, a professor of global health and medicine at Boston University, said the method had exciting potential for other diseases such as Zika, yellow fever, and chikungunya, which is also spread by mosquito bites. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that, like you said, the insecticides have never really been effective because there is this ecological niche for mosquitoes. And mm -hmm. so when you kill some, you just end up with the others giving birth to more. So you yeah. have to actually mm. keep the mosquitoes. And then, of course, there's always the risk that the bacteria is going to mutate. And now we've created mm. some sort of monster that gives us some other horrible disease. But that's down the road. Let's let future yeah. us deal with that. I mean, <laughs> this current solution seems great. Yeah. You know, no, dengue right fever is not a good thing. <laughs> so if we can stop it. Yeah. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Next link. Next link. All right. This next article is from the CBC, and it's called How a 1950s Experiment Brought Foam Igloos to Kinnegate Nunavut. Whoa. Huh. For those not familiar with Canadian geography, which very much includes me, Nunavut is the largest northernmost territory of Canada. It's also the newest, having only been separated out from the Northwest Territories in 1999 as Whoa. part of an effort to return wow. both land and an independent government to the Inuit people, who had, of course, been living there for centuries before the Europeans arrived. And, you know, Canada's relationship with its Native people clearly has a lot of parallels to our own relationship with Native Americans. but. One of the interesting things in their case is that because their terrain was so much more inhospitable, many Inuit were still living a pretty unhindered traditional lifestyle in the north of Canada well into the 20th century. Hmm. As recently as the 1950s, the Canadian government was still trying to expand its influence northward by encouraging the Inuit to abandon their nomadic lifestyle and assimilate into more permanent community settlements. And, you know, whether or not it was ultimately a misguided program, it does seem at least to have been a well-intentioned program. You know, they were trying to bring these people into the fold culturally, which is not necessarily great, but they were also trying to provide them with social programs and help them build up trading economies in these settlements they were trying to establish so that the two cultures could at least in theory have a mutually beneficial relationship. Mm. So one of these well-intentioned representatives from the Canadian government was named James Houston. And he arrived with his family by dog sled in the 1950s and was basically the first white person living in the area. So he had this mission from the government. And one of the problems he had with trying to convince the locals to settle into more permanent housing was that they then had to build a lot of housing, which was difficult mm -hmm. not only from a supply and labor standpoint being so far north, 
but also because the type of housing they needed to build was entirely new to the Inuit people. Because even in the far north of Canada, it does get above freezing during the summer months, and a traditional Inuit igloo will melt, which isn't a problem if you're a nomadic people who move around with the weather, but if you want a settlement that's going to last from year to year, an igloo isn't going to work. On the other hand, igloos were what the Inuit knew how to build and were comfortable living in. So Houston was really struggling to get them both to accept and to learn how to build these more permanent housing styles for themselves. But eventually, he connected with a Kingate native named Peter Pitsiolak, which is clearly a westernized name that he adopted, but they don't give any other name for him in the article. (laughs) (laughs) And at one point, Pitsiolak came south with Houston for a summer exhibition, which was a sort of cultural exchange that visitors could come, you know, like a World's Fair, but specifically between the north and south of Canada. And during the exhibition, they had Pitsiolak demonstrate how to carve and build an igloo using styrofoam blocks as an easy substitute. And Houston saw this and he was struck by the idea that actually this might be a way to sort of transition the people of Nunavut into permanent settlements, letting them build the igloos they were used to, but out of a sturdier substance that could last through the summer. So they were basically building styrofoam igloos. That was his idea. And he negotiated a large supply of durafoam from a company in Ontario that wanted to cold test its product in the Arctic. They would seal the bricks with tar. And ultimately, it also served as a bit of a tourist attraction where folks from the South could come up and sort of see something traditional in a climate that they were a little more comfortable in. And that brought in more money and stimulated the local economy. So, you know, it's sort of this complicated thing where on the one hand, It feels like a weirdly condescending cultural appropriation to our modern Mm -hmm, sensibilities to go in there and be like, hey, guess what? Those igloos you like, we're going to build them, but out of styrofoam. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But at the time, it was really viewed as a very progressive thing, right? Because they were trying to find this culturally sensitive middle ground to help these folks adapt to the changing world around them. And it did work in the sense that the locals were able to establish themselves in one place long enough to build more permanent housing and found what is now a thriving, if still very small, village. Unfortunately, the foam houses themselves were abandoned pretty quickly after they learned the hard way that durafoam is highly flammable. Oh. Yeah. And it was especially bad because they were building little fires inside the igloos, which is what they were used to. and, And it went very poorly. But it was the 1950s. A lot of buildings were very flammable. So maybe the Canadians were just sharing that part of their culture as well. (laughs) Brutal. Next link. Next Next link. link. Well, the MIT brains are at it again. According to fizz.org, a new material made from carbon nanotubes can generate electricity by scavenging energy from its environment. All right. Scavenging how? (laughs) Well, this is this is a little techy, but it's pretty amazing. They've discovered a new way of generating electricity using carbon particles that can create a current simply by interacting with liquid surrounding them. Oh. Hmm. Michael Strano, the carbon P dubs professor of chemical engineering at MIT, <laughs> which has got to be one of the coolest titles I've ever read out loud. Yeah. Strano notes this mechanism is new and this way of generating energy is completely new. This technology is intriguing because all you have to do is flow a solvent through a bed of these particles, which allows you to do electrochemistry without wires. Wow. Yeah, I mean, sucking electricity from the air sounds very sci-fi. It is. I want to believe that it's possible, (laughs) but it also seems like, I don't know, my gut feeling on this is like, that's not true. There's no way. 
<laughs> well, it's super new. And again, it is from MIT. And to be fair, this article in its verbatim entirety was posted from two different outlets. And so hmm. this seems to be a big deal, according to the curated links on Damn Interesting, which we know are always a big deal. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so this new study in describing the phenomenon, researchers have showed that they could use this electric current to drive a reaction known as alcohol oxidation, which is an organic chemical reaction that is important in the chemical industry. So let's get into how this works a little bit more because you're right, it does sound kind of sci-fi. So this new discovery grew out of previous research Strano had done on carbon nanotubes, which are basically hollow tubes made of a lattice of carbon atoms, and they all have unique electrical properties. In 2010, he demonstrated for the first time that these carbon nanotubes can generate thermopower waves. So when a carbon nanotube is coated with a layer of fuel, pulses of heat or thermopower waves travel along the tube, which creates an electrical current. So that work led him and his students to uncover a related feature of carbon nanotubes. And what they found was when part of the nanotube is coated with a Teflon-like polymer, it creates an asymmetry that makes it possible for electrons to flow from the coated to the uncoated part of the tube. And that movement generates an electrical current. And those electrons can then be drawn out by submerging the particles in a solvent that is hungry for electrons. So to harness this special capability, the researchers created electricity-generating particles by grinding up carbon nanotubes and forming them into a sheet of paper-like material. And when researchers cut out small particles, which can be any shape or size, the solvent adheres to the uncoated surface of the particles and begins pulling electrons out of them. So the solvent takes electrons away and the system tries to equilibrate by moving electrons. So there's no sophisticated battery chemistry. It's just a particle. You put it in solvent and it starts generating an electrical field. I think everything you just <laughs> said is a really good bit of evidence as to why I didn't go to MIT. <laughs> yeah, this one's a heavy tech one, but for those chemistry fans out there, I hope this is doing it for you here. Heck yeah, I guarantee and you there's some fans who are just like, oh my God, that's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, you know, given the size of this, the output is kind of amazing. The current version of the particles can generate about 0.7 volts of electricity per particle. And again, we're talking per about Ooh. teeny tiny particles, yeah. right? Wow. And in the study, the researchers also showed they can form arrays of hundreds of particles in a small test tube. They call this a packed bed reactor. And these packed bed reactors can generate enough energy to power that alcohol oxidation in which alcohol is converted to an aldehyde or a ketone. So why does this matter? What are they hoping to do with it? Well, they're hoping to use this kind of energy generation to build polymers using only carbon dioxide as a starting material. He's got a related project where he already has created polymers that can regenerate themselves using carbon dioxide as a building material in a process powered by solar energy. So what's the downside? Like, there has to be a downside. The The waste of this process is horribly cancer-causing <laughs> or we suck all the liquid out of the air. Because, I mean, if it works on carbon dioxide, that's another benefit because we have too much of that right now and we need a yes, place. Yes, we do. So I'm waiting. I want to know. I want the other shoe to drop. What's the downside? <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously, this technology is super-duper new. Right. And we'll have to play with it a whole bunch <laughs> before we figure out exactly how deadly it is to ourselves, the critters we share this planet with 
with in the planet itself. So stay tuned. Right. Like <laughs> like the igloos, we have to find out the hard way that there's a problem. I don't know. It sounds like we just got a free ticket to turn all of our pollution into electricity. Right. So I'm going to buy a Hummer next week. Oh, oh, there you go. That's right. If it's permission to continue living exactly the way I want and not make any changes, then. <laughs> <laughs> no offense if anyone actually owns a Hummer. They're very cool. Just not for me. <laughs> Whatever. You have like three in your garage. Don't lie. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. This article comes to us from gizmodo.com and is titled Extremely Sexy Pointy Shoes Warped the Feet of Medieval Europeans. I mean, <laughs> it's doing the same in present day, but let's talk about what we learned back then and clearly have not adapted to address. Yeah, so these are some next-level pointed shoes. Uh, <laughs> the first image that you see in this article is basically what you'd imagine to be like, you know, night greaves or boots. Okay. And then at the very end of the toe, instead of just ending in a toe, it goes for about another foot and a half. Wow. They are very long and end in a very narrow tapered point, which Wait, is- Wait, are these like the Mexican cowboy boots where they like are super elongated, thin pointy? They're similar to those, except they don't curl in on themselves and they're okay. even longer. And they're made of metal, which is awesome. And they can be made of metal. Yeah, they just <laughs> lay flat. So pretty wild. So archaeologists have recently attributed a plague of bunions found on nearly 200 skeletons. <laughs> That's right, bunions. <laughs> this no, article's about I, it that. It was plague of bunions. Yes, plague right? of bunions. Plague of bunions. Yeah. yeah. That's pretty cool. <laughs> found on nearly 200 skeletons, and the shoe was the Polane, or Krakow, and it had Europe. <laughs> I'm sorry, it's called a Krakow? <laughs> yeah, uh, C-R-A-K-O-W. I, I love it. I want some already. I don't care what yeah. it does to my feet. <laughs> <laughs> so these Polanes or Krakows had uh, Europe in a tizzy during the medieval period. Polanes were clearly not the sort of shoe you could labor in, making them a status symbol. Mm. And they were impractical, obviously, but, you know, that's fashion. Right. So a team of archaeologists recently examined skeletal feet from four different burial plots near Cambridge, England. And their findings, published today in the International Journal of Paleopathology, reveal interesting trends about the pervasiveness of hallux valgus, the lateral deviation of the big toe that causes bunions. And they looked at skeletons buried between the 11th and 13th century and compared them to skeletons from the 14th and 15th centuries. Only 6% of the earlier individuals had evidence of hallux valgus, while over a quarter of the late medieval group had it. Hmm. Piers Mitchell, an archaeologist, said in an email, We were most impressed by the fact that older medieval people with hallux valgus also had more fractures than those of the same age who had normal feet. This matches up with modern studies on people today who have been noted to have more falls if they have hallux valgus. So basically, you have this super hip fashion statement that gives you bunions, and then it causes you to fall over, and <laughs> you get fractures, statistically Ooh, speaking, as a right. result from that fall, and that's how they know, which is a little morbid, a little funny with the time <laughs> that has yeah. passed, you know? <laughs> I mean, if, if you're going to make these fashion choices in your youth, just know that it's going to affect you as an old person where you can't stand up anymore. <laughs> You fall down yeah. and break your hip all the time. And then yes. 500, 600 years later, people in a podcast, which you will never know what that means, <laughs> right. are going to laugh at you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. 
So the team wasn't able to deduce the severity of Halix Valgus from the remains as they could only tell if there was a skeletal deviation or not, but they were able to draw some demographic trends based on where the individuals were buried, trends which to an extent supported ideas about Polanes as a fad among elites. Mm. The studied remains came from a charitable hospital, a former friary ground, a parish graveyard, and a rural burial site. A near majority of those buried in the friary, 43%, where wealthy folks and members of the clergy were laid to rest, showed signs of bunions. Oof. That is a fashion craze that is sweeping this village. The the rich Uh, people, anyway, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the rich people. (laughs) In 1215, the church forbade clergy members from rocking pointy shoes, but that evidently didn't buck fashion trends as numerous subsequent orders had to be passed. Clearly, people really wanted to wear these incredible shoes, bunions, and church decrees be damned. <laughs> well, you know, if you're wearing monks and clergy robes all the time, all you've got are your shoes. You know, That's true. it's like the Pope's got those red shoes. That's right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Polanes didn't just irk the church, they also drew the ire of King Charles V of France, <laughs> who banned their construction in Paris. And Edward IV of England, who first outlawed the shoe toes from being more than two inches long and banned the making of any polanes two years later. (gasps) But the team found that polanes weren't exclusively an elite shoe. They also had mass appeal. The hospital was built to house the poor and frail, and those buried on site would have been disadvantaged members of society and hospital staff. Yet nearly a quarter of those skeletons there had evidence of bunions. And because those with Halix valgus seem to have more fractures, perhaps some of those hospital-bound folks were there due to those injuries caused by the bunions. Mm. So when these shoes come back in style, and it's only a matter of time of for course. us, <laughs> clearly, we can only hope they'll be a bit more foot-friendly than the earlier iterations. Yeah, yeah but, but then it's not fashion. Yeah, like you said, like <laughs> it has to hurt to be special, to be inconvenient, and be like, you can't do labor in these shoes, you must be rich. Yeah, mm-hmm. and imagine all the inconveniences we could create with modern science. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, there's got to be so many things we can come up with. Like a shoe that shocks you by harvesting the molecules from the air. <laughs> <laughs> next link. Next, next link. link. All right, this next article is from Live Science and is called, Will Humans Ever Learn to Speak Whale? Ooh. Oh, I hope so. Specifically, the language we're looking to decode in this case is that of the sperm whale. Humpback whales make that classic moaning whale song that we're all probably familiar with, thanks Mm -hmm. to Finding Nemo. (laughs) But sperm whales have a unique style of vocalization that's made up of clicking, creaking, and knocking type sounds. Hmm. Wait, so they're like haunted? Right, yes. (laughs) They're haunted whales. But when these sounds were first recorded in the 1950s, scientists initially thought it was used only for echolocation, since sperm whales can dive up to 4,000 feet deep and often live and hunt in complete darkness. But in the 1970s, they were able to isolate several differences in the patterns of these clicking segments, or codas as they're known, showing that some were clearly for echolocation, but others were exclusively for social communication. Hmm. And now, a new group of researchers wants to figure out exactly what they're saying. So the group is called SETI, with a C, for Cetacean Translation Initiative. Uh. (laughs) Yeah. And they plan to use a machine learning algorithm to analyze the clicks and see what patterns emerge. Which is always insane to me. Like when you find some ancient dead language on a tablet and somehow they can translate it and they can figure out, oh, this is talking about uh, grain storage. Like, how do you know that? How can you possibly (laughs) know that? But somehow they do. I don't know. But the tricky part in this case isn't actually the AI part of it. 
It's getting the AI enough source material so that it can properly analyze the patterns. Currently, scientists have around 100,000 audio samples of sperm whale codas, but they estimate they're going to need about 4 billion samples to be able to draw any useful conclusions. So this paper, which is available online as a preprint, is actually less about their AI algorithm and more about the various methods that they hope to use to collect these 4 billion sounds. Hmm. The most straightforward is, of course, to place microphones underwater in areas where sperm whales are known to congregate and just wait. But Mm -hmm. another option they're looking at is an airborne drone, which will hover just above the surface of the ocean and drop a microphone into the water when it spots a pod of sperm whales coming to the surface. They've even imagined using a swimming drone disguised as a fish, which could theoretically locate a pod of whales underwater and then follow them like a double agent, recording their vocalizations the whole way. That being said, they do admit that the AI portion of the project won't be easy either. Machine learning algorithms in general have found audio more difficult to interpret than text. And one reason for this is that text has spacing that clearly delineates where one word stops and another starts. Mm. So if it turns out that sperm whales mumble as much as humans do, it's going to be a lot harder for the AI to figure out where are the breaks in what they're communicating. Mm. Another problem pointed out by Pratyusha Sharma, a data science researcher for SETI, is that we don't know what whales talk about. Most animals, for example, have a pretty clear vocalization for when, say, a predator is in the area. But sperm whales don't generally encounter a lot of predators, though orcas will sometimes hunt smaller or younger sperm whales if they can separate them from the pod. Another obvious topic they might talk about might be, say, food locations. But sperm whales talk so much to each other that it seems unlikely they're talking about food the whole time. (laughs) They're talking about each other. They've got to be gossiping. Absolutely. Or they're talking about us. They're like, hey, you guys guys see that microphone fish back there? (laughs) Say some nonsense so we can (laughs) throw it off the scent. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I wish them the best of luck. I think it would be really cool (laughs) if somehow we could Rosetta Stone this thing. And find out exactly <laughs> what they're saying all the time. But definitely, I, I'm skeptical. That's all I'll say. <laughs> At least from your description of this article, it mostly sounds like they're just saying, this study is going to be really hard, y'all. Like, really <laughs> right. hard. <laughs> right. They haven't actually done any of this. They're just saying, this is what we plan to do with our grant money to make a uh, drone fish. <laughs> Well, I applaud the audacity, personally. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Next link. Next Next link. link. Well, some weird wheel animals have wriggled back to life after being frozen for 24,000 years. Oh, that sounds dangerous. (laughs) Yeah, what could possibly go wrong? Yeah. Kind of our new. subhead for the whole podcast now, isn't it? Right, right. <laughs> According to newatlas.com, scientists have managed to revive microscopic animals that had been frozen in the Siberian permafrost for about 24,000 years. They're known as bedeloid rotifers. They're really tiny tubular creatures. They're surprisingly tough. They're kind of likened to tardigrades in that respect, mm-hmm. except that tardigrades actually eat these wheel animals. Oh. Yeah, when conditions get too cold or dry, they curl up into a ball and dry out, which is probably <gasps> why they're called wheel animals. And they'll hibernate for months or years or longer, as we've seen, until conditions become more favorable again. 
But now these little critters have absolutely smashed their previous record of about 10 years. So in this case, researchers used radiocarbon dating to determine that the permafrost from which they were recovered was about 24,000 years old. And if that weren't impressive enough, these rotifers were still able to reproduce through their usual asexual process, which is known as parthenogenesis. The researchers examined these second-generation rotifers more closely and found that while they were very closely related to modern ones, they are different enough to constitute a new species. So hmm. next, we want to examine how these animals might survive such extreme conditions. They froze some of these guys at about 5 degrees Fahrenheit for a week, then thawed them out and watched them reawaken. You know what this is? This is basically the plot of the three-body problem. Did you guys read that book? I haven't. I've heard it's amazing. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's basically, it's complicated, but what you have is a planet with a highly erratic climate that just goes from one extreme to the other on an absolutely unpredictable schedule. And so you have, the author has imagined this species that has evolved on this planet to constantly be able to go into a, a dehydrated hibernation mode at the drop of a hat. And that's their cry is like, dehydrate! And they... <laughs> <laughs> Oh my gosh, that sounds super relatable to this actual science article. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the book is very well received. I think probably the author did some research, and uh, I mean, he clearly did. He understands the sure. mathematical oh. nuances of the three-body problem, which I do not. <laughs> So what we found about these particular rotifers is that they're able to protect their cells and organs from the kind of damage that other multicellular forms of life typically experience with the formation of ice crystals. The team still doesn't know how they do it, kind of magical, but just to zoom out a little bit, these rotifers don't actually hold the record for longest sleep and reactivation. Worms called nematodes have hmm. wriggled back to life after about 40,000 years, wow. while a batch of bacteria has them both beat at 100 million years. What could possibly go wrong? Oh. Still, rotifers may be the most complex creatures in the club so far. So the takeaway here is that a multicellular organism can be frozen and stored as such for thousands of years and then return back to life a dream of many fiction writers, said an author <laughs> of the study. Of course, the more complex the organism, the trickier it is to preserve alive frozen. And for mammals, it's not currently possible. But moving from a single-celled organism to an organism with a gut and a brain, even if it's microscopic, is a pretty big step forward. Mm. Yeah, it seems like <laughs> you, could, you can only keep the tiny building blocks. Like, once the climate yeah. is hospitable, then it's your job to evolve upward. Like, we're only going to yeah. preserve the low-level You stuff. know, as far as we know, right? now. Sure. Right. We could absolutely find uh, uh, Encino Man under the ice and <laughs> bring him back. Oh, if only. I would so love to see him wheeze the juice. <laughs> Next link. Next, Next link. link. Got another animal related one. This article comes to us from RealClearScience.com and it's titled when domestic cats eat humans. Ooh. Yes. Any chance they get, I would hey, imagine. Apparently, uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> lying in wait. Okay, don't the humans need to at least be dead first? Are you going to tell me that some animal <laughs> or some cats will actually start going after humans while they're still alive? No, yeah, they, they need to be okay. dead. So most cat owners probably think that their beloved pets adore them in return. And, yes. you know, they may be right. Uh, yes. Still, <laughs> deep down, there's always the nagging suspicion, does my cat want to eat me? And 
maybe it's when they look at you and lick their lips, revealing their vampiric canines. Maybe it's when they <laughs> spread out on one step of a precarious staircase, almost begging okay. you to trip. Maybe <laughs> this is all a little from the close article. to home, Angie. Yeah. <laughs> maybe it's when they sit on your lap and knead their claws into your supple skin, as if softening the meat. Mm-hmm. Quirky cat behaviors aside, rest assured that your furry feline companions do not want you dead and they'd prefer kibble to human flesh. Still, if given a chance to feast on a fresh human corpse, they might just seize the opportunity. So, I'm just imagining okay, all right. study, they've got a little bowl of human flesh and a bowl of kibble, and the cat's like, fine, I'll go for the kibble, but... <laughs> well, just wait. Uh, oh, so, no. <laughs> scientists at Maidol University in Thailand and the University of Hawaii documented one such instance in 2017. A man was found dead and decaying in his Thailand apartment, Forensic analyses suggested that he had been deceased for three months, and in that time, at least one of his three cats had apparently fed on his body. A more in-depth analysis of domestic cats scavenging human corpses was published in fall 2019. Researchers at the Forensic Investigation Research Station of Colorado Mesa University observed a couple instances of feral felines feeding on decomposing human bodies. So the Forensic Investigation Research Station, or FERS, is the perfect place for this sort of thing. I don't Sorry. think that was intentional on their no, part either. No, no, it's a pun in English, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So located far from any cities in the arid environment of western Colorado, the station's macabre yet undeniably fascinating function is to research the decomposition of the human body. Hmm. Thanks to the scientists stationed there, as well as dozens of body donors, FERS findings inform law enforcement specialists and forensic scientists. In this instance, researchers used cameras to watch two feral domestic cats, which I'm not sure how that works. I guess they're just yeah. cats that were <laughs> released. They're or, outdoor cats. Yeah, they're now outdoor cats. Uh, repeatedly scavenged two donor bodies placed within a fenced area designed to keep out larger animals. The first cat fed on the same body almost nightly for 35 days, focusing on the skin and fat layers of the left upper arm and chest. (laughs) The second cat repeatedly fed on the left arm of another body. In contrast to the first cat, it ate through the skin and fat into the donor's muscle. And though many other bodies were available to the cats, both preferred to scavenge the same ones, and they were not interested in gnawing bones. Hmm. So to back up, these bodies were donated by the people who were using them to science right, to become right. cat food, essentially. <laughs> and they and didn't know that's that. what was going to happen. It's possible they knew, but I imagine they don't tell you what your body is going to be used right, for in science. Right, right. I mean, it's still a noble pursuit to get information to allay very common fears, right? Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Absolutely. And, you know, like, while it's very morbid, I still find it very funny that there was one person in particular that was the most delicious. That <laughs> right, right, right. All the cats like this guy. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, you might be asking, what exactly is this research for? Well, it is specifically to help forensic scientists in the case of crimes, I imagine, and figuring out (laughs) why, you know, a body is mutilated and whether or not it's a cat or not. And if it happened pre or post-mortem. So, CSI crazy cat lady edition. Yeah, basically, yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> and the researchers end the article saying, due to the prevalence of feral cats throughout the United States and the world, understanding the patterns and behaviors of these scavengers can assist in distinguishing between paramortem and postmortem tissue damage. Were they murdered by a cat or did the cat eat them after they were dead? <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> Which I don't think we've had a case where somebody was murdered by a cat before. Not that we know of. Yeah. Now this science could reveal. We don't know. They're very sneaky. It's very true. <laughs> All right. Well, that is all we have time for today. We're so glad you've joined us. Some of the articles we did not have time to get to today include why the Mexico City metro collapsed, could face and voice recognition become the new phrenology, and a hole in the head, a history of trepanation. So all that and more can be found on dameinteresting.com. If you enjoy our podcast and like the lack of ads, you can support us at patreon.com slash damninterestingweek. In the meantime, my name is Jennifer Lee Noonan. I'm Angela Epley. I'm Whisper Chen. And we hope you have a damn interesting week. Bye-bye.